That all being said, let's turn one more time to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This will be the last time this year on this. We're moving in a little different direction for the month of December. Next week we start Advent, and there will be the Advent reading starting next week. I have a meeting afterwards just over here regarding those families that are involved in the lighting of the Advent candles in our reading. But uh, uh, Christmas season is upon us, so we'll be directing our attention that way, taking a little break from 1 Corinthians. And like I said, we're going to finish up reading 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13 this morning. Of these 13 verses, this is the fifth message, uh, and I'm just taking 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. This is be on guard, number 5, all right? And uh, reading along with me, let me get a drink of water first. A little sip. Verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Paul the Apostle, warnings from Israel's history. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, they had godly leadership directing them. They all ate the same spiritual food, manna, and they drank from the spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. I mean, Christ giving them living water, Christ's presence with them, God being with them. Nevertheless, verse 5, key, however, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. And then verses 6 and 11 are key as well. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us, you and I, from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written, that people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. Say that with me. And God is faithful. Say it again. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. There is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let me just kind of go go in this direction here a little bit and just say that in spite of all the blessings and all the privileges that God gave Israel, uh, they had God's presence, God's provision, God's protection. I mean, he, he went behind them, even in the Red Sea. He was ahead of them, the cloud by day, the fire by night, all this. They had godly leadership. They had the presence of Christ. In spite of all the things that God did for his people, they did not finish their race well. You'll recall Paul, and I'll read it in a little bit, but at the end of chapter 9, talks about that. And the Israelites had everything going for them, and yet Paul says God was not pleased with most of them. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to live my life 
to, to bring glory and honor to Christ. I want to live my life not for my pleasure, but for his pleasure, please him. And yet God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered, it says, in, in, over the desert. The Message Bible says of verses 6 and 7, it's a paraphrase, but I like it. It's where I got my sermon title from for this section. The same thing could happen to us. We must be on guard. We must be on guard so that we never get caught up, and here it is, in wanting our own way as they did. We always get in trouble when we think we know better than God. We always get in trouble when we think that we want our own way and try to do things our own way versus God's way. And then verse 11, these are all warning markers, danger in our history books written down so that we don't repeat their mistakes. Our positions in the story are parallel. They at the beginning, we at the end, and we are just as capable of messing it up as they were. Well, if we're just as capable of messing things up, friends, we need to learn not to repeat Israel's mistakes. All right? And so, really, if you look at it, Israel failed because of five things. We've covered three of these so far. We've talked about greed, we've talked about rebellion, and we've talked about grumbling. The other two that we're going to address today are the big two, which is idolatry and immorality. These were the keys, as Paul writes about, to Israel's undoing. And so this morning we're going to cover the last two sins that led to Israel's downfall, that of idolatry and that of sexual immorality. If there's ever a need today to preach on these things, it is today. Now the bottom line with Israel's undoing is that, simply put, Israel did not follow God's directives. They didn't follow what God said. Now, if you brought your Bibles, turn to Psalm 106. Just going to read a couple of verses there, four verses. You have to read the entire 48 verses on your own. I don't have time for that. But Psalm 106 is really a great description of Israel's history. And it says in verses 34 through 38, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them. In other words, they didn't do what God said. And then verse 35, but they mingled with the other nations and adopted their customs. Friends, pause right there. We are in the world, but this is not our home. We are just passing through. All right? But they mingled with the other nations. They adapted their customs. In other words, they became like those around them. Verse 36, they worshiped their idols which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons, and they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the, and the land was desecrated by their blood. You see, what began with disobedience to God's word ended up with mothers and fathers sacrificing their own children to demon gods. Think about that. This is why God was so severe with his judgment on the Israelites. You see, any sin had to be rooted out immediately lest it take hold and lead the people astray. 
It's also why God wanted the Israelites to completely drive out and in some cases annihilate the inhabitants of their new land. I mean, God knew that the pagan practices of the land would contaminate the Israelites. Because the Israelites failed to completely obey God's command, they struggled against these nations and their false religions literally for years and years to come. Church, it is critically important that we have an attitude of no compromise when it comes to sin. I've said before, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. Anything less is courting disaster. And this is precisely why the Apostle Paul was so unrelenting in his own discipline, his own self-control. For Paul says, do you not know that in a race, chapter 9, all the runners run, but only one runner gets the prize? And then he says to the church at Corinth and to us as well, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. He says they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, Paul says, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. He says, no, I beat my body and make it my slave. So after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul, the apostle, understood the dangerously subtle nature of sin. Therefore, Paul took this very seriously. And he's wanting the church at Corinth, and he's wanting us today also to take our walk with God very seriously. Now, the tragic lesson of Israel in the wilderness is that they did not take sin seriously. And therefore, they dearly paid for it. Think about it. They squandered their blessings. They destroyed their usefulness. They forfeited their opportunity to move from privilege to purpose as the children of God. Even amidst the the greed, the, the rebellion, and the grumbling that helped bring them down, here are two sins that we're going to cover today that were even worse because really they were at the root of others, that of idolatry and that of immorality. These same sins also pose a particularly dangerous threat today, especially in the church, because these two sins are so subtle but yet so prevalent. So what is idolatry? Idolatry is placing anything or anyone other than God highest in our affection and allegiance. It is worshiping anything or anyone other than Him. Now we see in the first two of the Ten Commandments, and by the way, there are Ten Commandments, not Ten Suggestions. We see in the first two how important this matter is to God. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 6. Verse 3, you, God says, shall have no other gods before me. No gods, number one. Second, you shall not make for yourself an idol 
in the form of anything in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Our obedience or our disobedience is going to be reflected in our children, in our grandchildren, and the generations that follow. Hopefully, it's obedience on your part so you can have a family and kids that will also be raised up in the ways, in the nurturing of the Lord, so they will also serve God all the days of their life. Now, God, God leaves no room for doubt here. God's blessing awaits those who love and obey him, and his judgment lies ahead for those who disobey him. The very first two commandments are related. They go together. No other gods and no idols. Now, although all the commandments are vital, these two, one and two, no other gods and no idols, along with a third commandment, which forbids taking God's name in vain, are the only ones, honestly, that have specific promises of punishment attached to them. Another indication of their fundamental importance. Now back to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7. Paul writes, And do not be idolaters. And do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now, inciting idolatry, Paul quotes from Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. And the story is familiar, but it's kind of sad. Moses is on Mount Sinai. He's been gone from the people for 40 days and nights. God has just given him the Ten Commandments on stone tablets. However, before the stone dust from carving the Ten Commandments could even settle, the Israelites violated them. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain... They gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Now, honestly, Aaron should have known better, wouldn't you say? All right. You would think. However, Aaron yielded to the people's request. Aaron wanted to please the people that he was serving, and so he gave in to the godless pressure. Taking the gold earrings that people had offered, Aaron fashioned them into a molten calf, and the people declared in verse 4, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then Aaron declared the next day as a feast to the Lord. Verses 6 through 8 of Exodus 32, The next day the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings, presented fellowship offerings, Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, and I love God's response here, Go down, Moses, because your people, not my people, God says, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt. In other words, God's saying, Moses, I don't want nothing to do with them. They're your people. You brought them up out of Egypt. And he says, they've become corrupt. 
They have been quick to turn away from what I've commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Now, interesting enough, Moses, as we know, had a heart of an intercessor. And so only the intercession of Moses prevented the immediate judgment of God from falling on the Israelites. As it was, loyal Israelites went through the camp at Moses' command. I'm leaving out a lot of details here, but Exodus 32, 27, 28 says, uh, Moses commanded the the, the people, the the Levites and so, killing those who had worshipped the golden calf, and about 3,000 people died that day, but the camp was cleansed. You see, the Israelites learned the hard way that when God says, you shall not have any other gods before me, God meant it. See, we always get in the trouble when we challenge what God has said. Going back to the garden, you know, did God, you know, Satan, did God really say? You see, the incident with a golden calf revealed a persistent tendency towards sin in the Israelites. For centuries, the Israelites dealt with the chronic and debilitating problem of idolatry. I mean, repeated offenses resulted in repeated judgments. Finally, the only thing that could cure Israel of their their pursuit of foreign gods and making and worshiping the graven images, they spent 70 years in captivity in exile in Babylon. You see, here's the deal. And we talked about this this morning in Sunday school as well. (laughs) But fallen man has a natural proclivity for a leaning or a bent to fashion and worship idols. Paul wrote that the ungodly and the unrighteous, uh, Romans chapter 1, 25, exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature, in their translation, the created things, rather than the Creator. Romans 1.25, you read that this morning, Cindy. Of course, idolatry does not always take the form of a statute or a picture made for that specific purpose. Idolatry can take virtually any form. For example, the Apostle Paul warned Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But realize this, that in the last days, terrible, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Holding a form of godliness, although they have denied its power and avoid such men as these. You see, loving self, loving money, loving pleasure are all forms of idolatry because they are elevated to a higher position in human affection than what God is. See, by nature, we are worshipers. That's the way God designed us. And you will worship something. If you're not a worshiper of God this morning, you are a worshiper of something. It could be even the worshiping of your own opinion as it's directly opposed to God's. But someone or something will be the object of our veneration, even if it's ourselves. Either we worship and serve the one and true living God, or we don't. As plain as that. There is no third option. 
And so you ask, well, Pastor Brian, how does this all relate to us today? Unfortunately, idolatry is alive and well in our modern world today. And by no means is idolatry limited to primitive or even pagan cultures. There are just too many idols, perhaps more even today than back when, in the industrialized high-tech and Christian West as there are elsewhere. I mean, for example, millions of people today worship artificial gods making, uh, at their own making uh, the altars of, of maybe human achievement or, or success or self-sufficiency. And what happens is God is shoved to the sidelines in their headlong pursuit of knowledge, of money, of pleasure, of possessions. What makes this situation worse is that this idolatry has affected or infected the church as well. Even today, there are many people in the church who may not even be aware of it, who are serving idols, and they're, like I said, unaware of it. The question we must ask ourselves then, therefore, is this. Is there anything or anyone in my life, in your life, that's more important to me or to you than God? Is there anything in your life more important to you than God? If the answer is yes, then you are in the grip of idolatry. I think one of the most prevalent forms of idolatry in our culture today is that of covetousness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The King James Bible says, And covetousness, which is idolatry. Another word for covetousness is greed, and we've already looked at that and seen how dangerous greed is and was for the Israelites in the wilderness. What's no less dangerous for us today. In other words, for our friends, we no longer desire God today for God himself. Many of us desire God for what God can do for us. Think about it. We have become lovers of money rather than lovers of God. Covetousness is heart selfishness. It's an attitude of craving, of lusting after something. Covetousness says, I got to have that, which leads to a single-minded pursuit that becomes more important than anything else. Therefore, the object of our desire is not as important as our attitude toward it. Now, it could be the desire for new clothes. It could be the desire for a new job, maybe a new car or a new house. As I've said before, there is nothing wrong with, any, with having any of these things. Remember, Abraham, I said like last week or two weeks ago, Abraham was very wealthy. None of these things are wrong in and of themselves, but it's our attitude toward their pursuit that determines whether or not they are objects of covetous desire. James had some stern words for this attitude among believers. When James chapter 4, 1 through 3, he writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Your desires that battle within you. 
You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive. Here it is. Because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So we have covetousness, a form of idolatry. Stubbornness is also another form of idolatry. Remember Saul, Israel's first king? God commanded Saul to totally annihilate the Amalekites, including the men, the women, the children, and all livestock. Saul, however, thought he knew better than God, and he spared not only the king of the Amalekites, but also the best of the livestock. And his reasoning was, well, I'm going to use that to sacrifice unto God. Well, Saul... Or excuse me, Samuel confronted Saul's disobedience with these words. He replied, but does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry and arrogance like the evil of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. The King James says, for rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness, not arrogance, stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. So being stubborn simply means you insist on doing things your own way or no way as far as that goes. And the New American Standard Bible uses the word not arrogance or or stubbornness, but insubordination. All three words, arrogance, stubbornness, insubordination, all three words convey, convey the essence of this attitude. In other words, all three words insist that we want our way more than we want God's way. Even though God's laid it out for us, how we're to live our lives and how we're to be salt and light in this world, we insist that we know better, we can do it better, and we think we know better than God. And so we don't bend, we don't yield to him, no matter how much opposition we face. The Bible sometimes uses the word stiff-necked, not stiff-naked, as one pastor said, but stiff-necked to describe people who think this way. thought you would smile there. Even religious practices and traditions can become forms of idolatry. A graphic illustration we covered this last week is in Israel's worship of the idol Nehushtan. 2 Kings 18 verse 4 says he, speaking of Hezekiah, he removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it And it was called Nehushtan. Now, it doesn't say it was an idol. No mention of idolatry whatsoever. It was really none other than the brazen serpent that God commanded Moses to make in the first place. Now, how could this brazen, this this figure, this bronze figure, have become an idol? Well, last Sunday we saw that it was given by God himself to the people. 
It was for their deliverance. It revealed God's power, God's love, God's compassion toward them. It spoke of forgiveness and cleansing from their sin and rebellion. All they had to do is look up to it, and God's healing came, and God's provision was there. Gradually, however, little by little, and this is how sin works, little by little, Israel began to take their eyes off God and transferred their worship from God to this brazen idol, this statue, if you will. It was years and years later when King Hezekiah had to destroy this past blessing. All because Israel, the children of Israel, had given it the name Nahashtan, which simply means bronze, and they were burning incense to it. Think about it. It had become an idol and had taken the place of God himself. How quickly we can take our eyes off the Lord and focus on some teaching, some doctrine, some blessing of past, of years gone by, even some experience, and we'll miss God. That's why, church, you and I need to be constantly aware of of what Satan's trying to do in tripping us up and not even give him a foothold. We need to guard our hearts from anything that eclipses the preeminence of Christ in our lives. That Christ would have preeminence. That Christ would be our all and all. Anything that we substitute for Christ is idolatry. It doesn't matter what else we may have going for us. Idolatry is something that we should look at, that all of us need to be very careful about. Once again, as I said, we need to constantly guard our hearts with this. We must ask the Lord, God, is there anything in my life that I value more than I value you? God, is there anything in, my, in, in any area of my life where I might be guilty of idolatry? And if so, and if God puts his finger on it, May I recommend highly this morning, be quick to repent. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. See, anything other than God that takes the center of your attention and value is an idol. However, when a person gives God all their heart, guess what? You're going to fall in love with him and you're not going to want anything that comes between you and him. You see, genuine love for God is, I believe, the cure for idolatry. A passion for Him makes all other loves seem shallow in comparison. And so we should say this morning, God, I don't want to have any other gods before you. You are my all in all, that Christ might have preeminence. Idolatry. The, the, second, uh, the second sin we're going to talk about, the fifth sin of Israel's list, is then that of immorality, sexual immorality. Another deadly sin that laid Israel low in the wilderness was immorality. Verse 8, 1 Corinthians 10. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Now, Verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 10 records that 23,000 died, whereas Numbers 25 verse 9 says 24,000 died. 
However, since Deuteronomy 4.3 indicates all, that all those connected with Baal Peor were under God's judgment, it seems probable that 23,000 actually died in the plague and that Moses included those executed by the judges in Numbers 25 verse 5 to make the total come up to 24,000. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this apparent discrepancy other than to say if you want to dig deeper, I would recommend Hard Sayings of the Bible where it has several pages just on this topic. Others, other writers and commentators believe both Moses and Paul were using round numbers. The important thing to remember, though, 23,000 versus 24,000, that this is a very serious danger that Paul was warning his readers about. The incident that Paul refers to is what 2 Peter 2.15 calls the way of Balaam, or Jude verse 11 calls the heir of Balaam. Revelation 2.14 warns the church in Pergamum, I have a few things against you, Jesus says, because you have there, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Now, just a little lesson here. Balaam was a Mesopotamian prophet hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse the Israelites. Remember, Moab was a descendant of Lot. Through this, Balak hoped to defeat Israel in battle. The story is found in chapters 22 to 24 of the book of Numbers. Three times, Balak implored Balaam to curse Israel. Three times Balaam responded that he could only speak what the Lord gave him to speak. Three times Balaam spoke words of blessing over Israel from the Lord. In other words, Balaam was unable to curse Israel or to get God to do so. However, according to Revelation chapter 2, verse 14 that I just read, Balaam apparently told Balak how to get the Israelites to bring a curse upon themselves. He told the king to seduce the Israelites into idolatry and immorality. The two big sins that, we, that we're, we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 10. The story of the tragic development is recounted in Numbers 25, where it says in verses 1 through 3, While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. And so Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Verse 9, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. See, God's plan, God's desire was to bless Israel and to make them into a great and a prosperous nation. Israel, however, brought God's curse upon themselves through their lack of self-control. The Moabites invited the Israelites to join in their sacrifices, their festivals, and the worship of Baal, which involved ritual prostitution as well as eating food that had been offered to the gods. 
unable to control themselves and perhaps unwilling to do so, the Israelites yielded to their temptation, committing idolatry and acts of immorality, and ultimately brought God's curse upon themselves. Now, the sorry scene with the Moabites is a very powerful illustration of the danger, once again, of compromise. God wanted his people to completely be separate from the pagan nations around them as far as sin, righteousness, and religious practice were concerned. Israel's disregard in this matter was one of their earliest compromises. And then, as it happens, one compromise led to another, then another, in a descending cycle toward disaster. As I said earlier, on your own, read all, all 48 verses of Psalm 106, which recounts the complete history of Israel in the wilderness. The Israelites' failure to drive out and exterminate the pagan peoples of Canaan led them, as I read in a few verses of Psalm 106, to Israel mingling with the other nations. Mingling resulted in Israel's learning the ways of the pagans, excuse me, which led to their adopting practices of gross idolatry and immorality. The Israelites even sank so low as to practice human sacrifice. We say, well, this one little sin, this one little act of disobedience won't hurt me. You are giving the devil a foothold. And before you know it, he's in your house. Don't even answer the door when he knocks. All right. See, it's always easier to be dragged down to someone else's level than it is to raise that person up to ours. I think one of the greatest challenges of the church in any generation is to aggressively engage the world with the message of Christ without being seduced or corrupted by the ways of the world. In other words, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to mingle with the world. The right way is the way of holiness, to walk as the salt of the earth and to be the light of the world with a bold and unapologetic testimony for Christ. In other words, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to serve Christ. The wrong way is the way of compromise, the way of accommodation with the world, a way that seeks at all cost to avoid offense. How many have heard of Corey Tenboom? A few of you? Corey Tenboom contrasts the difference between thermometers and thermostats. She said that a thermometer changes according to the temperature of its surroundings. However, a thermostat remains fixed regardless of the conditions around it. And in her own unique way, she said, too many Christians are like thermometers changing to whatever conditions they find themselves in. And what we need, she said, is Christians who, like thermostats, remain the same regardless of what's going on around them. I say, amen, Corey, all right? Jesus said this, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them 
from evil. Even at the end of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, no temptation except was common to all men. God's given us a way out. If we'll do things God's way, then guess what? We're going to be successful in God's eyes. Church, quit trying to be friends with this world. We don't belong here. All right. See, when Israel followed the way of Balaam, God had no choice but to bring judgment upon them. Why is it? Because God must judge sin. He can neither ignore it nor excuse it. The Israelites looked, uh, took for granted their status as God's chosen people. They thought, hey, we're blessed of God. God's provision is with us. God's protection's with us. I mean, God's, God's presence is with us. We are God's children. We can do whatever we want because guess what? Because we're blessed, no, no sin's going to come between me and God. Therefore, I can do what I want And yet they found out the hard way, no, you can't. You can't. See, that was a deadly deception and one of the subtleties of the way of Balaam. I think the enemy also deceives people today into getting us to think, you know, God's really not all that concerned about the sin in our life. I mean, God's blessings continue. And so what do we do? Because God hasn't immediately judged us today, we continue on in our sin. What we have done is believed the lie of the enemy that God understands our weaknesses. And therefore, because God understands our weaknesses, God makes concessions for our sins. Nothing could be further from the truth. The fact is... That God is not condoning sin. Rather, in his infinite love toward us, he's allowing us time to repent. Church, never confuse God's patience with God's approval. Never approve or never uh, confuse God's patience with God's approval. A classic example of this is Jezebel in the book of Revelation chapter 2. The so-called prophetess was teaching her, quote, her flock that immorality was okay. No doubt under a misunderstanding of grace or eternal security. The scriptures make it clear that God was totally opposed to her teaching and yet the word says she was given time to repent. In her case, God's patience ultimately comes to an end and because of her refusal to repent, she is killed along with her quote-unquote children. Many in the church today are in danger of following the way of Balaam. Many others have already succumbed. And if we're not careful, we can develop an attitude that says, well, I'm a child of God. I'm blessed of my Father. I'm secure in Christ No man can separate me from the love of Christ or take me out of the Father's hand so I can get by with sin. It won't hurt me. I can do as I please. Preacher, don't tell me how to live. Your sin and mine will be judged. It's an attitude of compromise. It's an attitude that winks at sin and neither understands nor takes seriously 
the principles of holiness and righteousness. Immorality, the way of Balaam, is rampant today in our world as well as in the body of Christ. When I first moved here 23 years ago, I know Jimmy Christensen just picked me up at the airport. We were, we, we'd made a trip to Iowa and back. And on the radio, I heard the report that out in Sun City, like in 2001, back then, there were a lot of seniors uh, hooking up on the golf course, partnering with people they weren't married to, having sex on the golf course. And the media in this town back then said, well, after all, they're seniors, they paid their due, they can do what they want. Uh, no, <laughs> no. You see, the moral relativism of our society has influenced even the attitudes today of many believers. And the tragedy is that many Christians, particularly, please listen to me, young people, they are confused or ignorant as to what constitutes godly and moral attitudes and behaviors. Many children, and I want to get in your business a little bit and say a few things that might upset you, but many children, even church kids, are now sexually active as young as the age of 10 and 11. I heard in the news a while back that 10-year-olds, 10-year-olds, are now having oral sex with one another. 10-year-olds. After all, they say it's really not sex, thanks to President Clinton, who said back in the 90s, I did not have sex with that woman. Yes, you did. And then many of our young people are contacting, and contracting, I should say, STDs. Premarital sex has become such a norm in the dating world that it's almost expected, even among Christians who meet on dating websites. You don't believe me, I can give you names this morning of those who I've talked to who have met someone on a Christian, Christian website, went out to meet, greet, whatever, and this guy told me that this gal thought that they were going to have sex because after all, that's what people do today on the first date. Christians in many parts of the country, especially in some of our largest cities, New York City now has condom machines on street corners. We are obsessed with sex. We are confronted with it everywhere we turn in books, magazines, movies, TV shows, internet porn, and on and on and on. Don't get me wrong, sex is wonderful. It is a gift of God between a man and a woman who are married, period. But the threat is so real, in fact, that a few years back, I know, Larry, if you remember this, you remember this, the Assemblies of God sent out a personal letter to all of its ministers warning pastors about the temptation of Internet pornography. And I even know pastors today who have got caught up in that, who've got counseled, who are back pastoring, but it tripped them up for a while. See, I hate to say it, church, but somewhere along the way, we have lost our moral compass. See, the world is looking to the church to display true attributes of holiness and righteousness. And yet, the sad case is this. The church tends to be no different than the world. God help us. 
God help us. We need to be absolutely clear about who we are and how we're to live. Jesus said this, for each tree is known by its fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. We'll either be known by the fruit in our lives, be it the fruit of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 talks about if you indulge in the flesh, that will lead to such fruit as immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, and carousing. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. On the other hand, if you embrace the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, He'll bring to bear in our lives the fruit of love, of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It was self-control that was lacking. If you look at these list of five sins that Paul talked about. See, when it comes to sin, the problem as I see it is that we, our flesh, enjoy it too much to quit. We are not merely to flee evil, we are to hate evil. I remember reading a book by John Bevere years ago. And John Bevere was talking to a man who was bound by cigarettes. Been there, done that. You know, I, I understand that. And in essence, John Bevere told the man the reason he wasn't free from smoking is that he still enjoyed it too much. And that's true. The reason you're not free, sir, ma'am, from internet pornography is because you enjoy it too much. I can take that down to what, you know, whatever list you want to. See, we don't know how to hate sin because we fail to understand what our sin did to Jesus. We really don't understand the enormity of the price that he paid when he died on the cross for you. We live in a world where it's frightfully easy to discover too late that we've been sleeping with the enemy. So, so my question is, as I close, how can we evaluate ourselves and know not only who we are, but also how to live faithfully as believers in a sinful and seductive environment? In his book, The Incredible Christian, A.W. Tozer lists seven tests for such self-judgment. Number one, what we want the most. Number two, what we think about most. Number three, how we use our money. Four, how do we, what, what do we do with our leisure time? Five, the company we enjoy. Six, whom and what we admire. And seven, what we laugh at. See, evaluating ourselves by these criteria in light of God's word will help you and I better understand ourselves and our motivation behind why do we do what we do. And so back to that list, what do we want more than anything else in the world? What do you want more than anything else in the world? What do you think about voluntarily? What do you do with your discretionary income? How do you spend your free time? Who do you hang out with? Who do you look to as examples and role models? And does your sense of humor honor God or cater to the world? Every once in a while I'll be riding with some of my friends 
riding quads, and they are not all Christ followers. And sometimes they might tell an off-color joke or a dirty joke, and they're waiting for me to respond. And I will not smile, I will not crack a smile, I won't even, even give them the satisfaction of thinking it's funny, which is then to them a gentle rebuke. Seriously. Why? Because we'll be known by our fruits. After one or two of those times, they don't, they don't tell those jokes around me anymore. <laughs> but here's my question for you in closing this morning. What does your fruit say about your life? What does your fruit say about your life? Does it show you to be a child of the world or a child of a king in training for residence and rule in Zion, the great city of God? I trust that your life will show you to be a child of the king. And if there are areas of idolatry or immorality in your life right now that you would understand this morning, it is his kindness that is leading you to repentance. Let's all stand with those in prayer. A serious word that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, but as well as for us today. Father, today as we conclude this part of 1 Corinthians 10, I pray that you would help us to look seriously at our own lives and to apply the things that I've been sharing and, and preaching on for the last five weeks about being on guard and guarding our hearts and seeing the warnings that, that, that Paul issued not only to the church in Corinth, but to us today. Lord, help us to live it out. Help us to deal with the sin in our lives because we also know that you are not only a God of grace and mercy, you are a God of justice and judgment. And Father God, help us to understand that your silence in a matter does not mean your approval in a matter. Father, forgive us for doing things our way. God, help us to bear the fruit of the Holy Ghost in our lives, in every area of our lives. So when people see us, they will say, that person is a true Christ follower. Father, with heads bowed this morning and eyes closed, God, I pray for those who have gathered, those who are looking into their own hearts right now, saying, God, examine my heart. God, see if there be any wickedness in me today. And God, if, if you bring to light those things in our lives, God, that we'd be quick to repent and say, God, forgive me, wash me, cleanse me from my sin. Because God, I don't want anything in my way of serving you, of living for you, of pleasing you. Forgive me for doing, doing things my way and not doing things your way. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, just respecting the privacy of those that are around you as well. But as God's been speaking to you this morning about things in your life that are not pleasing to Him idolatry, immorality, grumbling, greed, you know, those kind of things that, that Paul talked about. If there's things in your life that you need to get right with God, just say, Pastor Brian, pray, pray for me, pray with me. I need to get some things right with God. I need to repent of some things in my life right now. If that describes where you're at, just put your hand up, put it back down. Amen.
Anybody else? God speaking to your heart. I guess my message this morning is, is simple, church. Get the sin out. You can't continue to live in sin and gain the Savior. Get the sin out. Deal with those heart issues that God's speaking to you about. Anybody else? God's speaking to your heart. Father, the hands that I've gone this morning, God, you see them, but most important, you know, you know what's going on in each of our lives. God, you know us better than we know ourselves. And God, I pray for grace and mercy in their lives and that you would help them, God, to hate sin, to hate evil, not just to flee evil, but to hate evil as you hate evil. And God, help them with, with repentance, God, to confess those things as sin and, and to lay it at the altar, so to speak, and say, God, I'm done living that way. I'm done with the idolatry, with the immorality, with whatever it is that's tripping me up and not allowing me to serve you wholeheartedly. And so, Father, this morning, we just commit ourselves to you. Help us to live, God, 100%, no compromise. Just, just fully sold out to you, all in for you, Jesus. I pray in your name, amen and amen. I want to open the altars this morning. If you would like prayer, and it can be not related to this, but if you want prayer for healing or whatever, God's here, God's, God's word's been preached. Let God confirm his word with signs and miracles following. Other than that, we have prayer meeting tonight. If you can help, once you're dismissed, get things out of room four as we get prepared. We need more help tomorrow night as well for the decorating. Uh, one thing that I really don't like doing, <laughs> I don't be here, but we need some help with those that enjoy that kind of thing. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. Wednesday night service, 6 p.m. We're continuing in our Bible study, the life and teachings of Christ. We have youth group as well. So God bless you all. Altars are open if you want prayer. Other than that, have a great week in the Lord. Amen.